So here we are again for the last uh, episode of our series, Comparative Media Insights. And tonight we have with us Professor uh, Heather Hendershot visiting from um, Queens College, where she's Professor of Media Studies. And Heather has a really interesting background, lots of, um, lots of fellowships that I think speak to the quality of her work and the moments of reflection she's had to generate the amount and quality of work that she's had. Heather's had a, a Guggenheim. Um, she was also the Anschutz Distinguished Fellow in American Studies uh, at Princeton, as well as the Shelby Colum, uh, as well as a fellow at the Shelby Colum Davis Center for Historical Studies at Princeton, a senior research scholar at the Center for Religion and Media at NYU. And her books include, this is the latest, What's Fair on the Air, that just came out uh, from Chicago this year. She also wrote Shaking the World for Jesus, Media and Conservative and Evangelical Culture, also Chicago, 2004. Edited Nickelodeon Nation, The History, Politics, and Economics of America's Only TV Channel for Kids, and uh, Sunday Morning Censors, Television Regulations Before the V-Chip. Her work centers on, I mean, at least I would describe it as centering on niche audiences of a kind, specialized, coherent audiences, and some of the regulatory regimes around them, the his history of their access to a voice, uh, and we'll hear lots more about it tonight. So Heather, welcome, and thanks. thanks. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me here. It's really delightful to be here and to be able to present my research to you. Um, what I'm going to do is uh, run through a few of the key arguments from this book that just came out in September and then segue from there to point towards my next book project, which comes fairly directly um, out of this project. And hopefully in the course of this, you'll get a sense of you know, the key issues that my research is interested in and uh, the ways that I'm thinking through uh, issues, even though it's historical work, issues of contemporary relevance around citizenship, uh, democracy, and certainly free speech, and the uh, fraught notion of the public interest. There have been three periods when right-wing broadcasting has thrived in America. The first was embodied by a single man, Father Charles Coughlin, in the 1920s and 30s, and the third period is ours, the era of Rush Limbaugh, Bill O'Reilly, Sean Hannity, and Glenn Beck. Coughlin's story has been well-documented, I think, and it is impossible to be unaware of today's hollering pundits. The middle period of Cold War right-wing broadcasting, however, has been all but ignored by contemporary scholars. The book that I've just published focuses on this middle group, the free market, anti-communist, anti-civil rights, TV and radio pundits of the 1950s and 1960s. There were four right-wing broadcasters who were particularly widespread on local TV and radio in the 50s and 60s, H.L. Hunt, Dan Smoot, Carl McIntyre, and Billy James Hargis. The first two were secular extremists, while the other two publicly self-identified as fundamentalists. All intermingled, however, on the radio dials of hundreds of independent stations all over America and on a smaller number of network TV stations. And I'm going to show you throughout the talk a few cartoons from Carl McIntyre's publication, The Christian Beacon. It was his newsletter, um, and it gives you a sense of a kind of extremist uh, take on issues like the FCC. So they, the, the Carl McIntyre's radio show was the 20th Century Reformation Hour. He eventually lost his license for violating the Fairness Doctrine. And as you can see, they really felt, he really felt that he was uh, a grassroots kind of movement that was being uh, uh, menaced by this, this mushrooming menace, the FCC, which Congress, uh, Farmer Brown up there, <laughs> uh, planted and is, you know, 
destroying uh, the 20th century Reformation movement. Um, so these right-wing producers of public affairs programs are important to study for a number of reasons. First, the roots of Reagan's conservative revolution can be traced back to Barry Goldwater's attempt to bring extremism into the mainstream. Right-wing broadcasters were pulling for Goldwater and laying down a right-wing ideological and discursive framework that resonated with that of the extremists hoping to take over the Republican Party. Second, this ideological and discursive framework still exists. Right-wing TV and radio pundits today are recycling much of the free market and libertarian rhetoric that the 60s broadcasters crafted, even targeting some of the same issues, Social Security, Medicare, welfare. Third, though many broadcasters were not explicitly religious in orientation, they were in bed with the fundamentalist broadcasters of the 60s. It was the fundamentalists who owned the stations that aired right-wing radio. The Cold War secular and religious right were right next to each other on the radio dial, and they supported many of the same political causes and candidates. Understanding right-wing broadcasting complicates our history, then, of not only the Republican Party's shift to the hard right, but also the roots of the Christian right, which has had an on-again, off-again love affair with the Republicans and the so-called secular right. I want to show you a clip from a John Birch Society recruitment film from the early 60s that I think illustrates this sort of pivotal moment in uh, the, the relationship between the secular right and the uh, Christian right. I've been a minister now for about 18 years, and although I'd been alarmed at the drift away from fundamental church doctrine, it wasn't until I had read the John Birch Society material that I saw the parallel between the spiritual liberal takeover of the church and the liberal political takeover of our country. Yet because of my own fundamentalist background, I hesitated to become a part of the John Birch Society because I didn't want to mix religion and politics. But the more I meditated, the more clear it became that the society's fight against communism was far more than just politics. Suddenly I realized that if we don't stop the advance of communism, none of us will be free to preach the gospel. Neither I nor any of my fundamentalist brethren hesitated during World War II to volunteer for the armed services. So why should we hesitate now? Today our country is under a much more serious and dangerous attack by its enemies than ever before. And just as I couldn't live with myself during World War II until I had volunteered to do my part, for the same reason I couldn't live with myself today unless I had joined the only non-religious organization that has any chance of turning back the greatest enemy our country has ever faced. Okay, so this is Tim LaHaye, who would later be a co-founder of The Moral Majority, who would co-author the best-selling book series, The Left Behind series, which is sort of right behind you know, the Bible and Gone with the Wind in terms of global bestsellerdom. It's pretty astounding. And here he is in the early 60s saying, I wasn't sure if religion and politics should mix. It seemed kind of weird to me. So it's really a pivotal moment of fundamentalists coming into the mainstream uh, and sort of uh, this is the primordial moment uh, for the Christian right. Um, and you'll notice that he doesn't say, I prayed about my, my concerns. He says, I meditated on it. it. He doesn't want to sound like an extremist. He doesn't want to sound like some crazy Bible thumper. It's a deliberate attempt to appear kind of like a moderate uh, fundamentalist Christian. So I think it's a very interesting kind of illustration of what I'm talking about. 
so this is H.L. Hunt having his uh, vegetarian uh, lunch on a newspaper. He was a billionaire, but he spread out his nuts and berries on a newspaper, and he was trying to achieve immortality through diet, which didn't work out for him. But uh, In 1951, wealthy Texas oil man H.L. Hunt founded Facts Forum, a 501c3 organization which was theoretically politically nonpartisan. Hunt favored an intelligent, wealthy, ruling elite. And in, a, in a futuristic novel he wrote, he went so far as to advocate a society in which the wealthy had more votes than the poor. Uh, former FBI agent Dan Smoot hosted the Facts Forum TV show, a 15-minute program designed to serve the public interest by giving equal time to debating two sides of an issue. Smoot explained the yes and no sides of the daily question, uh, questions like, are U.S. defense policies essentially sound? Sometimes questions were reasonable, but often questions were, uh, for the debates were more of a when did you stop beating your wife kind of variety. One program, for example, asked, should there be a realignment of both political parties? The assumption was that Republicans and Democrats were identical, and the question was simply what to do about it. On the liberal no side, Smoot argued that most voters are sensible middle-of-the-roaders who would have no place to go after a realignment put all the extreme right-wingers in one party and the extreme left-wingers in the other party. On the yes side, which Smoot agreed with, he argued that... <clears throat> The leaders of both parties are essentially internationalists who scorn your point of view as reactionary and isolationist. If you happen to think that federal compulsory social security is a main prop of state socialism, identical in principle with the system that Bismarck set up in Germany years ago and which paved the way for Hitler's Nazi state, what political party will you turn to? This was clearly a right-wing position, not simply a conservative one. No one just happens to believe that social security is the road to Nazism. Another Facts Forum-backed public service program, Answers for Americans, was a panel discussion show featuring the same liberals each week, former Congressman George Hamilton Combs and NYU professor Charles Hodges. On one side of the platform sat William F. Buckley and a rotating guest conservative. The liberals got their say in, but the mellifluous Buckley seemed to win every scuffle. Combs did not fare well under the harsh studio lights, and though most of the participants chain-smoked, it was only Combs to whom the smoke seemed to cling in a thick film. That's Combs on the left and Hodges on the right. In his three-piece suit with Carnation Boutonniere, he effused East Coast liberal establishment. Professor Hodges was articulate, but often came across as a cartoonish liberal intellectual. He also looked a little like Lenin with glasses, which I don't think was a coincidence. Uh, so we'll take a look at an Answers for American clips so you can get a sense of what the show was like. Well, I think we've had two answers to this point of view. Uh, there seems to be a general uh, agreement here that college professors and students are being suppressed in their rights of free expression and inquiry. Uh, the conservatives are being... Uh, suppressed and liberals are being suppressed, is that right? Well, I, I think that you have to admit that they're <laughs> all on the extreme and that they're their own problems. Yes. But I think the atmosphere since the war has been unwholesome on the campus. I know with my colleagues that we all agree that it is unwholesome. And as anybody knows, I happen to be about as violently anti-communist oh, yeah. as I'm an intellectual can be. And well, I that's funny. 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 That's
the people who are emotional and hysterical and in a constant state of frenzy, the people who meet in permanent uh, hatred and make the, the dislike of McCarthyism the center of their worldview, are the Hutchins and the Bertie Russells and all of those people. Now, well, to keep talking, unrealistic. To summarize this, and then we'll go on to another question to summarize. Is this true or not? I'm trying to get a conclusion here. The gentleman on my left, Mr. Buckley and Mr. Toledano says, are saying that there is hysteria on the campuses against anti-communists. Uh, the gentleman on my right, Mr. Cohen <laughs> and Professor Hodges, are saying there is hysteria on the campuses against liberals. Is that well, uh, if you want to rub it out that way? Yes. That okay. I love it when Hodges goes, "Pooh," you know. He's really not pulling it off the way that Buckley is, obviously. Though facts form and answers for Americans were flawed as objective public affairs programs, they did make more than a token gesture of balance. Eventually, though, Hunt could not convince anyone that his broadcast had no political bias. And with his organization's tax-exempt status becoming increasingly tenuous, he shut down the entire operation in 1956. Two years later, Hunt undertook a new broadcasting venture, Lifeline. This time around, the thin veneer of balance was replaced by the broad brush strokes of free market pontification. Hunt's new announcer was the Reverend Wayne Poucher, who had been a campaign manager for Strom Thurmond's successful senatorial writing campaign in 1954. Handsome devil. To avoid the problems that Facts Forum had encountered, Lifeline had pledged not to attack minority groups and only rarely to attack specific individuals by name. In a way, Lifeline had painted itself into a corner. The only material the show had to work with was government spending. Channeling Hunt's free market economic perspective, Poucher mocked virtually every governmental expenditure and activity. But as was a typical strategy of these public affairs shows, he would often quote from the congressional record or quote a senator. And it was a way to say, I'm not making a personal attack. I'm just saying something publicly that's already been said. It's not necessarily my point of view. It's just, you know. Um, so you'll get a sense of that strategy here. I'm going to show you two short clips, the intro and the conclusion of an episode. Frozen? All right, let's try one last time. Okay. Mysteriously frozen. It worked before. I don't understand. All right. Uh, well, we'll move on. Uh, this is uh, Robert Welch of the John Birch Society. Sorry about that. Uh, it will be helpful at this point to provide some context for Hunt's activities, lest he simply seem like an isolated eccentric. In the 1950s, Hunt had been the biggest funder of right-wing propaganda in the U.S. But by the time Lifeline appeared, many other wealthy businessmen had joined the fray. Patrick Frawley, a maverick in ballpoint pen promotion in the post-war years, indeed he's the man behind Papermate would later become the head of Schick Safety Razor and chairman of Technicolor in 1961. He was a co-chairman of the outfit that produced the famous televised half-hour speech in which Ronald Reagan pledged support for Goldwater. Frawley supported Fred C. Schwartz's Christian anti-communist crusade, providing advertising for Schwartz's three-hour 1961 telecast from the Hollywood Bowl, which was called Hollywood's Answer to Communism. It was a gala network affair with John Wayne and Adolf Monjou and all the, the usual suspects. 
Frawley never had a regular radio or TV program like Hunt, but he did sink a lot of money into conservative media. Walter Knott of Knott's Berry Farm similarly pursued anti-communist objectives, establishing a clearinghouse for a wide range of right-wing films, publications, and tapes. And D.B. Lewis, dog food manufacturer and industrialist, uh, purchased advertising time on many extremist programs. H.L. Hunt would only sponsor his own show and was a notorious skinflint. Lewis, by contrast, was a right-wing hero for advertising widely. A great many right-wing businessmen also supported the John Birch Society by advertising in its publications and via direct cash donations. The Birchers only briefly experimented with radio, preferring more low-tech media projects such as bumper sticker and billboard campaigns. The Birch Society had its own publishing imprint and also sold books, film strips, and LP records. And of course, there were these excruciatingly dull 16-millimeter recruitment films starring former candy manufacturer Robert Welch. In some, by the 1960s, Big money was flowing from the right, much of it not into the coffers of the Republican Party, but instead into the freelance production and distribution of conservative media. In the 1950s, Hunt had been a big fish in the small pond of right-wing media. But 10 years later, the swimming hole had expanded tremendously. In particular, Dan Smoot, Hunt's former frontman, had become a right-wing broadcaster in his own right. Smoot had been successful as the voice and face of H.L. Hunt on facts form, and Hunt was terrified of the camera, so he was always behind the scenes. He would never be in front of the camera. Uh, but Smoot soon grew tired of giving liberal points of view on every issue. So in 1955, he resigned to begin his weekly Dan Smoot Report, a newsletter that in 1957 would become a 15-minute weekly TV, radio, a TV and radio program aired throughout the South, Midwest, and West Coast. In his publication and broadcast, Smoot voiced his opposition to civil rights, communism, foreign aid, the United Nations, Earl Warren, and so on. And this is another image from Carl McIntyre's publication. It gives a pretty typical perspective on uh, communism and civil rights. Um, that is Eugene Carson Blake uh, representing the NCC, the National Council of Churches, which was a liberal Protestant organization, which was seen as completely communist by uh, the, the, the right-wing fundamentalists. And here he's you know, pictured literally as a horse's ass. Uh, in, uh, in cahoots with the, uh, with the Communist Party. And this guy, Vic Lockman, was a Disney cartoonist who drew a bunch of the Scrooge McDuck uh, comic books before he got into uh, more right-wing illustrations and illustrating uh, homeschooling books. Smooth's program was often exceedingly dull and, in fact, actively strove for a zero-degree style. The black and white report opens with a gentle orchestral arrangement of America the Beautiful, with titles offering a literal interpretation. America is represented by the flag, is superimposed flying over amber waves of grain, and then over Purple Mountain's majesty. The title of the program appears on screen, and then Smoot himself appears sitting behind his desk, always dressed neatly in a suit and tie. Behind him is a bookcase with matching volumes, a globe, and a small houseplant. Visually, Smoot offered viewers the very picture of good taste and middle-class respectability. One imagines the books behind him must be the Harvard Classic series, which were promoted with the notion, and this is a quote from uh, Janice Radway, that every American should engage in perpetual education through self-guided reading, and that anyone could acquire learning through no more than 15 minutes of reading a day. Smoot, too, would offer self-improvement in 15-minute doses. After the report's opening titles, Smoot would introduce the day's topic, the film would cut to allow insertion of a sponsor's plug, and then Smoot would deliver his message, which appeared perfectly memorized, though he did actually use a teleprompter. This was a model performance of seriousness and rigor, 
Of all the broadcast ultras, Smoot was the most careful and refined in his use of language. This was a precise rhetorician, a man who clearly treasured his thesaurus. Once his careful monologue was completed, Smoot would close by telling viewers that they could learn more by subscribing to his report and by buying products from his sponsors, which was another way to support him. Aside from cutaways for sponsors at the beginning and the end, the entire program was composed of a single shot. This appeared to be a show utterly drained of aesthetic ambition. In effect, Smoot gave lectures that deliberately avoided taking advantage of what TV could do that print and radio could not, reveal things visually and dramatically or dynamically. One might chalk this uh, restraint up to financial limitations, but I also believe that the non-aesthetic that he chose to use suited him quite nicely. After all, Robert Welch made a number of John Birch Society recruitment films without ever stepping out from behind a podium. That Welch was a notoriously dry speaker was acknowledged by even the most devoted Birchers. He was terrible. If the man who symbolized the American patriotic movement didn't have to liven things up with a backdrop more ambitious than a curtain, why should Smoot waste time on elaborate mise-en-scene? So I'm going to show you a clip, will work this time, of Smoot. Okay, maybe if I click on it. What do you want me to do? Like escape? can't find it because it found the first it uh see play that one no that was the one that didn't roll before and now I want this no this desperately Yes, it is. Oh, yeah. Uh, MIT talk. Smoot clip. Smoot clip short. That's it. On March 17, 1965, a federal court issued an order authorizing the sale of the Montgomery demonstration. It began on March 21, ended on March 25, under protection of the U.S. Armed Forces all the way. Many of the marchers were human scum, beatniks, prostitutes, degenerates, drunks, bums, and communists, some of whom were paid to join the march. U.S. Representative William L. Dixon Alabama Republican has made a careful investigation of the Selma to Montgomery demonstration. Here is a sample of his findings, quote, Drunkenness and sex orgies were the order of the day in Selma, on the road to Montgomery, and in Montgomery. Negro and white freedom marchers invaded a Negro church in Montgomery and engaged in an all-night session of debauchery within the church itself. This is a bunch of godless riffraff that have left every campsite between Selma and Montgomery littered with whiskey bottles, beer cans, filth. The Communist Party is the undergirding structure for all of the racial troubles in Alabama in 1965. And what about the king, King Martin Luther? Martin Luther King himself has amassed the staggering total of more than 60 Communist Front affiliations since 1955. 
Okay. So again, he's quoting from what this Republican uh, congressman said to avoid any kind of personal attack rules. So it's a direct response to FCC policy to format the show this way. Viewing this clip, one wonders, how did Smoot get away with this? Did the program air in violation of the Fairness Doctrine? Often, yes. At the same time, stations listed the show as performing public service when they filled out their license renewal forms for the FCC. Something, I think, to remember when we hold up the old notion of public service as a, a tragic casualty of broadcast deregulation. It was a tragedy, but the notion of what public service was varied quite widely. Uh, did the networks know about the program? Apparently not. The key to Smoot's success, indeed his very existence, lay in his local rather than national distribution. The FCC was specifically encouraging of local programming in the 1960s, and there's no doubt that Cold War right-wing broadcasting was the ultimate in local programming. Hunt and Smoot's TV and radio shows came from Texas, after all, and Smoot's program was a source of local and regional pride to those who supported it. At the same time, the show functioned as a symbol of marginalization and resistance to a supposed left-wing media monopoly. After all, Smoot was distributed on a state-by-state -state basis on local stations rather than being fed out via national network feed. If right-wing television was a symbol of localism and states' rights for its white producers and viewers, it was also a symbol of the oppression of the states by the national networks. From this perspective, NBC, CBS, and ABC operated with all the imperiousness of the federal government, and more specifically the Supreme Court, right, Brown versus the Board of Education is the subtext here, by making decisions that should have been made purely at the local level. Smoot did not always explicitly discuss civil rights and states' rights, but by virtue of being non-network, self-distributed, grassroots, Texas-produced television, the report in and of itself consistently symbolized states' rights and opposition to federalism. To fully understand Smoot, then, requires discussion of a number of issues related to localism, the FCC's invention of ascertainment and its definition of the public interest and public service, the importance of localism to U.S. broadcast history, and the history of, and wider context of racially sensitive material on the air. And this is all too much for me to go into now, but maybe we can pick up on a few of these issues to, uh, during the Q&A. Consider Amos and Andy, for example. Innumerably more people watched the locally syndicated Amos and Andy between 1953 and 1966 than had watched the program when it was first aired nationally in 1951 to 1953. Altogether, Amos and Andy had a 15-year run that coincided with the years of the civil rights movement. As far as the national networks were concerned, though, the show had been canceled in 1953, and the problem of representing African Americans had been solved until it reemerged in the late 1960s. Amos and Andy, not unlike Lifeline and the Dan Smoot Report, flew beneath the radar of the big three, the networks, precisely because it was programmed locally. Such potentially controversial local programming was of no concern to the networks. Media historians have often valorized the local over the national. In the 1920s, activists and amateur broadcasters fought the Federal Radio Commission for use of the airwaves, Robert McChesney has explained. But the feds won, and the big networks arrogantly took it upon themselves to monopolize programming and determine community needs. Today, many would argue control of national broadcasting comes from behemoths like Clear Channel or Rupert Murdoch's News Corporation, while local programming such as public access and pirate radio represents an authentic grassroots. And YouTube, everywhere and nowhere, sometimes reinforces the local, while at other times seeming to eliminate the idea of place altogether. The celebration of the local over the national is not a formulation without merit, and researchers like Deirdre Boyle certainly have proven how powerful local TV can be. 
that grassroots right-wing TV succeeded in finding local distribution forces us to tweak the conceptions of local versus national that have prevailed in media studies. Genuinely local and grassroots programming may well pose a challenge to the corporate media monopoly, but there's no reason to presume that local is synonymous with progressive, clearly. Clearly, Smoot was an individualist, not a strategist or movement builder. Shortly after he went off the air in 1967, one-sided conservative broadcasting largely disappeared until new right-wing figures such as Rush Limbaugh and later Bill O'Reilly appeared in the wake of Reagan's suspension of the Fairness Doctrine. That was in 1987. Like Smoot, the pundits of Fox News opposed federal government regulations and spending on social welfare programs, though unlike Smoot, their objective is to entertain. Bill O'Reilly offers a good show, hollering at guests and cutting off their mics if they dare to disagree. And Glenn Beck had an even stronger dramatic or really melodramatic impulse. Smoot was above such shenanigans. Um, between Smoot and Limbaugh, conservative broadcasting was scarce, but not gone completely. Milton Friedman's 10-part 1980 PBS series, Free to Choose, for example, was a tribute to the glories of the free market, echoing some of Smoot's and Hunt's ideas, but in a cheery, can-do manner. William F. Buckley's firing line ran from 1966 to 1999, and upon Buckley's passing in 2008 was widely trumpeted as the first conservative TV show, uh, quote, an obvious precursor to shrill modern era programming like Hardball, Tucker, Hannity and Combs, and Scarborough Country, uh, uh, according to the New York Times. Buckley's highbrow program encouraged lively, intelligent debate from all sides and was very different from Smoot's. Uh, at the most basic level, a long shot. <laughs> Wow, that's, you know, visually there's more going on than Smoot. You can see he's got an audience instead of just being this authority figure in an empty studio. He'd like to bring kids in, college students and high school students. Um, they sit on the floor, it's like a rap session. And here is, uh, this is Buckley with um, Norman Mailer. And even more different from Smoot, multiple cameras. He had a, it was a three camera show. Although it's extremely unlikely that Sean Hannity has ever heard of Dan Smoot, his dogmatism and inability to, to engage with those he disagrees with make him more stylistically akin to Smoot than Buckley. In any case, the idea that Buckley was the first conservative with a TV show seems particularly silly in light of the fact that Buckley himself was a permanent guest on H.L. Hunt's Answers for Americans more than 10 years before Firing Line premiered. The eulogizers got it right on two counts, though. First, William Crystal noted that it's hard today to appreciate that before Buckley, there was no American conservative movement. Buckley created conservatism as a political and intellectual movement. Smoot and Hunt were not movement builders, to say the least. Second, Hugh Kenner observed that Bill Buckley was responsible for rejecting the John Birch Society and the other kooks. Without him, there probably would be no respectable conservative movement in this country. What is left unsaid here is that Buckley began as a Birch Society supporter. His insight was that kooks like Welch, Smoot, and Hunt had to be cut loose for the movement to move forward. However, it's mistaken to conclude that extremists such as Smoot and Hunt were simply inconsequential to the conservative movement that would follow. For one thing, the extremist broadcasters had many listeners and viewers, which translated to a lot of voting power down the road. Smoot and his compatriots got conservatives riled up to make big changes. But for whom could they vote? Smoot often advised his followers not to vote in presidential elections, feeling that there was, there was no true conservative candidate. However, he did encourage people to vote in state congressional elections and local elections, where he saw more room for true conservative candidates. A similar strategy would work well for the Christian right throughout the 1990s, when it dramatically consolidated its power not in the White House, but on school boards and in state legislatures. 
How fitting, finally, that Buckley's penultimate posthumous publication would be a tribute to Barry Goldwater. The man who emboldened Smoot and his right-wing compatriots at last to go to the polls and vote for a real conservative presidential candidate. He lost the election, of course, but a conservative movement blossomed in his wake. Hunting Smoot plugged on for years, but the right ultimately didn't need their kind of propaganda to move forward. It needed, in brief, four things. First, organizational skills and a behind-the-scenes cash flow to the appropriate causes. A wealthy, eccentric tightwad like Hunt was no help whatsoever on this front, and Smoot had only enough funding to keep his own operation afloat. The need for organization and cash flow was intertwined with a second need. Think tanks and organizations such as the Moral Majority, the John M. Olin Foundation, and the Heritage Foundation. Third, the builders of the new right needed an issue besides communism, not to mention civil rights, opposition to which by the late 70s would mark them as bigoted, extremist, and marginal. The Republican Party did begin to veer right in the post-Goldwater years, which made it more appealing to rich conservatives like Patrick Frawley and Walter Knott. But these wealthy businessmen would need to change too. They needed to shift their agenda from communism to culture. By the 1980s, Coors and Domino's, among others, would emerge as the corporate face of the new right. In a 1979 essay entitled Building the Moral Majority, Paul Weyrich spelled it out this way. The family will be to the decade of the 1980s what environmentalism and consumerism have been to the 70s and what the Vietnam War was to the 60s. Communism was the right's big issue in the 60s, and this is implied by Weyrich's reference to Vietnam. But Weyrich specifically references liberal social movements as the model for the new right. These were the movements that had traction. If the new players in the growing conservative surge could shift gears away from communism and economic issues, Weyrich conjectured, a new movement could be created around issues like opposing abortion and gay rights. It worked, of course. Fourth, as far as media was concerned, Lifeline's hokey style and Smoot's austere speechifying simply would not do. The right needed slick media to mainstream and modernize itself, pulling away from its extremist image. The silent screen perfectly embodied all of these goals. The film was about abortion, the big issue that could bring together conservative Protestants, Catholics, and Jews. It was slickly produced, and it could be used to inspire activists and to fundraise. This was practical propaganda. Programs like Lifeline and the Dan Smoot Report were finally driven off the air by both fairness doctrine complaints and economic pressures. These super-patriot broadcasters lost their fight against a mainstream media that they saw as hopelessly liberal. But though they lost the battle, they won the war when the fairness doctrine was suspended by Reagan, clearly, uh, in 1987. Over the course of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, as the Republican Party moved ever rightward, and the new Christian right and secular right gained power, most of the old super-patriot broadcasters persisted in seeing enemies everywhere. Their surviving Cold War TV and radio personalities were simply too fiercely dogmatic, individualistic, and cranky to consider collaborating with the new right. They continued to see enemies everywhere. That these new right enemies were fighting against abortion, feminism, gay rights, and evolution in the schools did little to temper their vitriol. But with enemies like that, who needed friends? This is where my last book leaves off, and my new project on Firing Line picks up. Um, and I, I, I'm really drawn to this project because I think that examination of Firing Line is going to allow me to continue to pursue many of the issues that were raised in What's Fair on the Air regarding the history of American conservatism and the role that media has played in that history, but while also moving, I think, in a new direction uh, by following Buckley, who's a, a bit player in What's Fair on the Air, beyond the Cold War years. 
As a starting point, the book will take Firing Lines as a thoughtful, uh, two-sided programming, a rigorous enactment of the fairness doctrine conceived by someone who thought the doctrine should be eliminated, yet who also recognized that smart political discussions and smart political TV benefited from ideological conflict. The book will consider how Buckley's program, which was considered out of gas by many conservatives shortly after Reagan's election, nonetheless soldiered on, continuing to find space for itself on PBS in large part because of the culture wars of the late 80s and early 90s. PBS needed firing line as a trump card to prove that it was not a liberal hotbed. And here we see uh, Buckley uh, with Rush Limbaugh in 1992. And you can see, you know, He's won. Republicans have triumphed. We're out of that studio with all the college kids and this kind of, you know, sweet environment to uh, Buckley's home in the velvet chairs and there's candy bowls and everything and there's no audience needed. It's just him and Rush Limbaugh affirming each other's ideas. Um, that said, it's kind of a disaster as a show because he's much smarter than Limbaugh and they don't have a real conversation. So the shows, you know, someone like a Norman Mailer was a much better guest because there was conflict. It was much more interesting. It was better TV. Certainly, it's important to consider Firing Line specifically as a media artifact and as a major player in the history of public affairs television. Indeed, as Nixon sought control over PBS, one of his earliest strategies was to appoint conservatives to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, starting with Neil Freeman, uh, who was Firing Line's first producer and a longtime associate of Buckley. When Buckley was later critical of Nixon's China policy, Firing Line would find itself on the chopping block with all the other public affairs programs which Nixon sought to ban completely from PBS. Uh, Firing Line made Buckley the face of respectable conservatism. It also made him a media, a media star, though he certainly was not unknown before Firing Line. Buckley's papers held at Yale University revealed the media strategies bolstering his 1965 bid for mayor of New York City, which I see as a crucial stage in Buckley's creation of himself as a celebrity persona and thus as a likely success as a talk show host. Many private citizens who wrote to Buckley during the campaign noted that they were already familiar with him from the televised debate he had held with James Baldwin at Cambridge University a few months earlier, the organizing theme of which had been, uh, the American dream is at the expense of the American Negro. Buckley had lost the debate by a five-to-one vote of the Cambridge students in attendance, but apparently he won as far as many U.S. TV viewers were concerned. Other New Yorkers wrote to Buckley during the mayoral campaign just to tell him that they appreciated him having the guts to challenge party machine politics. Ben Bagdikian wrote Buckley a letter supporting his, his symbolic endeavor, though he also noted that he disagreed with every one of Buckley's positions and would never dream of voting for him. CBS newsman Fred Friendly, Edward R. Murrow's old colleague, was charmed by Buckley's charismatic televisual presence and wrote him to ask for a meeting to discuss his future in the TV industry. In any case, if we take the mayoral campaign as a sort of warm-up for firing line, we can handily suss out Buckley's own attitudes toward mass media. In short, he was wary of it. And having been egregiously misquoted by a number of newspapers early in the mayoral campaign, he began bringing both a stenographer and a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder to all public events. He deplored the photo op, and fully realizing that his campaign was symbolic, you know, he ran on the conservative party ticket in order to protest the Republican John Lindsay, who was no such thing, not a Republican. Uh, so Buckley was dismissive of foolish handshaking events that candidates engaged in purely to ingratiate themselves with this or that special interest group. He disparaged such party players as goo-goos, which meant good government boys, and worse, blintz munchers. 
Uh, Buckley was not anti-Semitic, but the blints uh, came to symbolize for him the empty symbolism of politicking. Eating blintzes at a Jewish deli was like kissing babies at a parade. To make a long story short, the campaign taught Buckley that media was difficult to use. One was more often used by it. The only solution was to create your own TV show in which you called all the shots. Hence, Firing Line, which was initially imagined as a 13-episode program, but ultimately ran for 1,500 episodes. Buckley claimed uh, from the beginning, perhaps with some pride, that the ratings were exiguous, which means, if you, I mean, I'm sure you all know what exiguous means, but it means uh, scanty or meager. You really learn a lot of new words if you work on William Buckley. Uh, but he was only on commercial TV for four years, after which the show had the rest of its ratings-free run on PBS. Firing Line was not only a lively venue for the discussion of public affairs from all political angles, but also an inspirational program for many youngsters who would later constitute the new right. In fact, at a recent Yale symposium on the impact of Buckley's first book, God Man at Yale, numerous attendees pointed to the impact that the 1988 Ron Paul program had had on them. And Rich Lowry, current editor of the National Review, described videotaping Firing Line as a youth and studying the programs carefully. Moving beyond such personal experiences, I'd like to find a new way to think through Buckley's role and the related role of Firing Line as a player in the American conservative movement. Backtracking a moment, note that I ended my book by pointing to Richard Vigory and Paul Weyrich as key movement builders. The kind of tactical work that Vigory and Weyrich were doing was about building social movements on the ground. It was, to put it as crudely as possible, about motivating conservatives to open their wallets and go to the voting booth. These strategies worked. And this way of telling the story of the resurgence of American conservatism is not incorrect, but it does leave certain things out. Buckley's actions were of a completely different nature. Um, he was thinking, for example, about the ways that conservative theory could be translated into practice. Roughly put, how could Frederick von Hayek's theories be manifested as trickle-down economics? This was intellectual conservatism. As popular conservatism took off, fueled by the social issues outlined by Ray Rich, activists hit the streets to picket abortion clinics. But Buckley remained planted behind his Smith Corona, pounding out copy on deregulation for the National Review. Or behind his clipboard on firing line debating cerebral topics. Buckley's followers, writing book after book in the three years following his death, have begun to stake a claim that he, or we, meaning the National Review, created modern American conservatism, ignoring the importance of Vigory, Falwell, anti-abortion activism, etc., in favor of a story centered on policy wonks, and free market economics. Of course, both ways of telling the story are correct. Uh, but I'd like to consider how we can think about the interconnections between the two kinds of narratives and probably some contradictions. Taking Firing Line as a vehicle conveying Buckley's notion of what conservatism really was. Begun in 1966, just one year before Dan Smoot went off the air, Firing Line would, take, would stake a new claim for a respectable conservative broadcasting. In fact, by 1970, Buckley was so mainstream that he was invited to appear on Laugh-In, where deadpan comedian Henry Gibson was one of his interlocutors. I can't really imitate Henry Gibson, but I'll try. Whenever you appear on television, you're always seated. Does this mean you can't think on your feet? Without missing a beat, Buckley replied, it's very hard to stand up carrying the weight of what I know. Only six years after Goldwater's defeat then, and ten years before Reagan's ascension to the White House, Buckley's appearance on Laugh-In was but one of many signs that real conservatism purged the post-war moderate conservatism embodied by Eisenhower and Rockefeller, was already making strides toward the mainstream. One could be extremely conservative without being an extremist. The leaders of the new conservatism sought to distance themselves from people like Dan Smoot and H.L. Hunt. 
knowing full well that vituperative, racist, and often downright loopy right-wing broadcasters needed to be left behind if the new conservatism was to thrive. Thrive it did. While Buckley, ever seated on firing line, would share the weight of what he knew for the next 30 years. Thank you. Um, questions. Please use the mics because this is being recorded. So are there any questions on the floor? Okay, so um, I love this. Thank you so much. Um, I'm really interested in uh, the part of your talk where you're describing how a new generation of, uh, of new conservatives um, cut their teeth in actually participating in the production practice. Uh, of, of these shows, and it's something that in, in my own work I'm, I'm looking at and trying to argue around the role of movement identity production and how that's tied to media making. Mm -hmm. And what I'm looking at is the spread of participatory media making practices and the rise of digital literacies and how that feeds into, you know, make media make trouble, basically. Right. But I'm looking at, at it on the left. I wonder if you could extrapolate a little bit from this, um, you know, previous history of production practices that form conservative identity, and w how do you think that plays out now as more people gain the skills of media production? Or uh, among the right. On the right. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting because you have a kind of hierarchy of Fox News as the home base for conservative thinking, which is obviously a gatekeeper in the old political communication terms. You know, not everyone can be on, 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 uh, on Fox News, right? And then you have... And you don't have any kind of local stuff on the ground like Smoot or Hunt or, you know, these small locally produced TV shows. Uh, you certainly have a ton of activity going on in the blogosphere. That's, that's clear, right? Um, and uh, uh, various other kinds of online activism, like if you go to YouTube and punch in gay rights against Christian or Mormon or, you know, ton of other terms, you'll get these promotional videos for why gay marriage is, is bad, and some of them will be extremely right-wing, and some of them will like these guys, like uh, Tim LaHaye saying, I meditated on it, they'll try to sound really moderate. And there's one that I find particularly terrifying that's this, uh, uh, you know, computer animation of little stick figures. And it's like, Mary and John live next door to Pete and Steve. Have you seen this one? And, uh, you know, they like Pete and Steve. When Pete and Steve go out of town, they take care of their dog. They have barbecues together. <laughs> But, and it's very kind of Donna Reed show thing, you know, uh, but they, uh, you know, they don't agree about certain issues. And one of those things is the issue of gay marriage. And, they, you know, and they, and they make it sound so friendly and moderate and, you know, and everything. And then you have other things that are just like uh, that sort of God hates fags, uh, far right stuff, right? And it's all mixed together. And it can be very hard to decipher, okay, who put this out? Where did it come from? What's the organization? What's the home base for this? This is part of what I was saying about how YouTube can seem, uh, you know, uh, very local at certain times, like when you see the school uh, recital, you know, like this is a public school in Philadelphia, and here the kids are doing their tap dance routine, and it, you know, it's specifically that place. And then you see the stick figure animation, you're like, who made this? Where's it from? How's it being used? And it's hard to know. You, all you know, you know, you can see how many hits it's had, maybe, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so there's certainly all this grassroots right-wing media production out there, but it can be hard often, just like with left-wing media production or liberal production, to trace it back and figure out how it's being used on the ground sometimes. I hope that's a, at least a step in the right direction to answering your question. Yeah, I, 
I, I guess this is a, a related to that. Uh, I mean, it's remarkable how successful I think a lot of conservative media has been. <laughs> what are the lessons for progressive media? I mean, we, we've seen sort of the failure of Air America and and yeah. the, the limitations, and even you know people want to say NPR is left wing, but it's a little hard to get that you know excited about that you know that. So I, I'm curious, sort of seeing this this long history, yeah. you know what what. What well, should progressives so be thinking? Because we have a, a kind of paradox of the right wing realizing we can really tap into what the left wing is doing, and and you know look at look at how what the activists are doing in Chicago and in '68 and getting the cameras to turn to them. How can we make the whole world watch us? You know, and and appropriating these strategies and realizing oh what the hippies did in the '60s or the '70s, we can do at abortion clinics with the right kinds of signs, the right kind of media coverage, the right kind of uh, public relations spin. You know, uh, so they're appropriating these tactics uh, that come out of an earlier era. And they did it properly, and then where does that leave, you know, stuff coming from the other direction? And I can't, I can't really say. I mean, on the ground, of course, you have things like uh, Occupy Wall Street, and you know, just so much social media going on that thousands and thousands of videos posted online. I mean, clearly, people are using media from a left liberal perspective. Um, you know, in terms of uh, more mass media, uh, uh, you know, MSNBC is competing more. I mean, you know, Rachel Maddow comes out of working with Al Franken on Air America, right? Um, and, uh, you know, when Air America crashes, which, I mean, it's almost doomed from the beginning. It had a very slow start. It declared bankruptcy, you know, fairly early on. It's just a mess. Um, you know, she was able to move to MSNBC and try to, you know, she's, now that, uh, what's his name is gone? Keith Olderman. Um, and I, personally think she's better than he was. You know, I, I thought that whole Edward R. Murrow closing was just, what? Because he's an opinion guy. He's not a newsman. You know, he's an opinion man. He's not, a, he's not do, reporting stories and so on. Um, so I think, I think that she's better. But, you know, she, she, her numbers can't compare to what Rush Limbaugh is doing on radio um, and the numbers that Hannity has. And, and Beck is an interesting marginal figure um, and someone who that, that left or progressive folks could possibly learn from where he gets booted off the air. Um, did, did anyone follow the Beck story closely about how he got booted off the air? You know, it, he was, his numbers were high. They just couldn't get advertisers anymore. The only people advertising were gold hoarding organizations, you know, and silver. It was all like metallurgical <laughs> uh, organizations and, you know, bomb shelter organizations, whatever. Uh, so they couldn't get advertisers. But the numbers were insanely high. So he left and he's like, well, I don't really need Fox um, because I can go online, I can get on satellite, I can, you know, and he already had, part of the problem with Fox was that he was diluting their brand identity because he had so many side projects. He had the 912 project and, you know, all of these different, you know, the Glenn Beck School and, you know, all these kind of sub things and you could subscribe to everything. And it wasn't like he was a Fox guy. He was, Fox was just part of his media empire. So they were, um, they, they, they didn't like that. You know, so they, that was part of the reason that he left. But his model for just sidestepping that completely um, is something that pro possibly progressives could learn. But the thing is, before he went off and got his whole, you know, the website and all the subscription services, he became famous on Fox News. So, you know, it's like you have to start with the mass venue and then go to the niche venue afterwards. So Rachel Maddow could do that. She could move somewhere else and someone else could come in her place. But it's hard to... Um, you have to have some way that people will actually know to, cl to click th through to you, to find you. Yeah. So hopefully that, that helps uh, answer your question a little bit. As one of the people who grew up in the 60s, 50s and 60s, I found this very refreshing, thank you, um, to have 
especially to have this sense of this undercurrent of, of media that frankly, growing up in a Midwestern city like Minneapolis um, in, liberal, in a liberal household, um, we just paid no attention. I, I, I don't know how much of that kind of work you've done in your research. It'd be interesting for me to know, have you actually done demographic interviews? Have you, have you talked to people about how they use these programs? That's one issue I have. Another is I'm a little puzzled by why you want to just do firing line as a follow-up because it seems to me that it is a special case for a lot of the reasons you discussed. And how can you divorce that kind of media content program from the the whole era of Reagan revolution print media? I mean, how can you think about firing line without talking about somebody like George Will, talking about the neocons mm -hmm. at New Republic? Um, it seems to me that the whole question, th there are so many issues here being alluded yeah. to. I, the last thing I just have to say is the whole, the whole problem is, uh, comes down in some level to what Paul Krugman is now being quoted almost all the time for saying that Newt Gingrich is a stupid man's person idea of what a smart person sounds like. And <laughs> unfortunately, the truth of that is that um, there are probably a lot more stupid people on the right-wing side than on the left-wing side. I, I, I don't know, you know, this is a very awful thing to say, but the, the whole way our culture has evolved, this, I really, I'm talking too much. I really like the way you started by tracing this back to the 20s, and, but of course we know from Hofstetter and others that these, these, all these issues are part of the whole American political scene for a long time. So I would just want, maybe the focus here is, why firing line? Why not a, a more broad question to go forward um, from here? Because there's so many deep cultural issues that are being raised by your work. Um, well, you've got you give me a lot of things to chew on there. Um, with firing line, I really do hope to do a richly nuanced history, and I don't. I, you're absolutely right. We have to look at the publishing. Uh, around the neocon movement. You can't talk about firing line without talking about national review. Um, but I am trying to get at the differences between uh, populist conservatism and, and a kind of intellectual conservatism. And so it's really a question of, do you tell your history of the conservative movement as a, for, as a bottom-up movement or as a top-down movement? And a lot of books have done that one way or the other. You know, or they've been strictly personality-driven, like the really wonderful book by Dan Carter on George Wallace. It's fantastic. Um, so the question is, how do you negotiate between those two kinds of stories and try to complicate them? Because they're often incorrect. You know, like the Tea Party, what a populist bottom-up movement, financed by the Koch brothers, who were, you know, gazillionaires, right? So it's not, you know, that's not really a populist movement. Or H.L. Hunt, you know, grassroots movement. He was at one point the richest man in America according to Time Magazine, literally, because he had so much oil, you know? So sometimes what we think of as populist and grassroots really is, you know, the opposite, you know? So um, I don't want to just limit it to firing line. I mean, firing line is, is a big piece of the story, and I feel like I have to figure out the frame of the whole book uh, when I've done more archival work. I've just gone to Yale so far where there are seven tons of Buckley papers. So 
I'm not going through all seven tons, but you know, I've looked at the mayoral subset of that collection. And I'm going out to the Hoover Institution in, later in January, where all the firing line, specifically firing line documents, are kept. And that's where I think I can spin out a more nuanced history where, OK, it's just firing line. But who are the guests on the shows? What kind of political work are they doing? What kind of correspondence do they have with Buckley? What does the viewer mail say about how people are responding to the show? Um, what are the research files? Like and so that's where you get into some of like you asked about audience issues. Um, you know, I think looking at the firing line documents, I'll get more of a sense of audience issues in terms of this project and audience issues. The best source uh, that I found was with Carl McIntyre, whose uh, the, the cartoons were from his publication. Um, I, I did find a fair number of letters from his listeners in the Philadelphia area when he was under threat from the FCC, and uh, you know, letters of support. Uh, supporting him sent to the FCC and letters saying to him, you know, about uh, why they loved him and why they hoped he wouldn't go off the air, and, and articulating the the attack on McIntyre's attack on the, the the grassroots and on fundamentalists and so on. And you find a really interesting mix of perspectives there. I didn't actually find any letters that were racist, that you know that said, you know, we really want you to keep preaching against civil rights because our Martin Luther King is a communist and we hate Negroes or, you know, just any of that stuff. It was very sincere, kind of, you're preaching the gospel and there's no one else preaching the gospel in this area. So the idea of the Fairness Doctrine was to increase diversity. They get rid of Carl McIntyre and there's no other fundamentalist preacher on the radio. All the rest of the radio that's religious in the Philadelphia area at that point was from the National Council of Churches, which was from a more liberal Protestant perspective. That, so in the name of, you know, increasing diversity. They had actually eliminated kind of diversity. But anyway, the point is, you know, I ha I've had some access to those, those letters, and it was very interesting. But when I did the research, they had not finished, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, accessioning all the, all the McIntyre papers. And they just opened up the archive like six months ago with all the viewer mail. So I think there's a whole rich project to be done there looking at his constituents and how they interacted with him. There's no, uh, I've been through all the Smoot papers at uh, Texas A&M, and there's no, there's only his private correspondence. There's nothing from viewers. So a lot of this stuff, you can get the numbers, like uh, D.B. Lewis, the dog food manufacturer, sponsored Smoot, and he did, he funded his own audience studies to get a sense of the numbers, and he said there's six million people watching Dan Smoot. How does he know? I haven't found any data on this. You know, uh, there's because they're public affairs programs, they fall completely outside of Nielsen. They're, you know, they may be on network, but the networks don't even notice they're happening because it's Sunday morning public service. So it's very hard to pin down viewers. And I'm hoping that I'll have more luck with firing line because it's a different nature of the archival material. Uh, excellent. I like that presentation very much. Uh, very nuanced, beautiful uh, uh, use of material. Um, I'm interested in, uh, uh, you just mentioned it, um, um, I'm interested in this fairness doctrine and the origins of it, the genesis of it, mm -hmm. and also its demise. And also, as part of this uh, question, can matters such as we're talking about here, localism, conservatism, and so on, in your opinion, actually be regulated by doctrines like this that get uh, created and then uh, canceled and so forth? Yeah. Some um, reflections on that. Okay, great. Well, the Fairness Doctrine came about in 1946. Um, and uh, basically, Coughlin, Father Coughlin was uh, frightening 
to a lot of people, uh, certainly to the FDR administration. He'd been a populist who supported FDR, and then he turned right and was supporting Mussolini and, and the Axis powers. And um, finally, pressure was brought upon him by the Catholic Church. They just said, well, we'll defrock you, basically, if you don't stop. So he uh, stepped down and stopped broadcasting and just went back to being a, a priest. Um, and there was great anxiety about something like this happening again in America. And so uh, the initial decision was that there could be no editorializing uh, on, uh, on radio at that time, um, that it just had to all be neutral. You know, and it was a scarcity rationale, right? Just like all FCC regulation in the past has been the idea is we only have, we have more radio than TV, but we have a limited, finite number of, net, of venues for people to speak from. So if you happen to be lucky enough to own one of these networks or stations, uh, keep it neutral and fair, okay? So in the early years, don't editorialize. Then they say, well, okay, we're gonna pass this fairness doctrine, which says if you, it says two things. One, that broadcasters are obligated to cover controversial issues of public importance. And two, when they do so, uh, if they provide one controversial point of view, they have to provide the other point of view. So there's two points of view on everything. So it's a very schematic idea of balance. Um, and broadcasters saw this as a huge relief because before the rule had been no editorializing, so they thought this was great at first. And then over the years, opposition started to build. Um, in 1960, the FCC passed this, uh, the, this 1960, uh, what was it called? can't remember, something like the, the Policy Act of 1960, um, in which they uh, advocated for ascertainment, that you had to ascertain community needs, and it was a fallout from New, uh, New Minnow's uh, vast wasteland speech that we have to improve broadcasting. So you have to see what the people really want locally, um, and, and uh, then you know, cover controversial issues of public importance based on community needs, but they didn't want to tell people exactly how to figure out what the local needs were because that might be censorious and infringe on their First Amendment rights. So it was a huge mess. Ascertainment was a disaster. Um, in 1969, a fundamentalist who was a friend of Carl McIntyre's um, had a, a, a attack on an anti-Goldwater book and didn't provide equal time to the other side. And this was a big case, the red line decision, that uh, eventually went up uh, to the Supreme Court and said that you know if someone provided a uh, covered a controversial issue of public importance, not only did you have to provide the opposite point of view, either on the same show or across your programming schedule, but you also had to offer that time for free, if the person couldn't afford it, right? Because that was free speech, literally free speech, right? Um, this became a tool of the Kennedy administration and then Johnson and then Nixon to get the broadcasters off the air. Because if you deluge them with fairness complaints and ask for free advertise, free uh, free speech time, then they couldn't afford it. They would lose. The, you know, they couldn't they couldn't sell that time to advertisers anymore. You know, so it became this idea of free speech became a tool against free speech. You know, the speech of the right. Um, and of course, Nixon was on the right too. He just hated all these guys. He was very paranoid, obviously. Um, so, and then it, Reagan suspends the doctrine in '87 as part of his whole deregulatory regime. And Rush Limbaugh you know, goes national pretty much the next day. And you have a resurgence of right-wing broadcasting, starting with radio, and then a few years later, ending up on Fox News. So that's a kind of condensed history of the rise and fall of the Fairness Doctrine. Um, in terms of uh, regulation now, the issue of localism, uh, you know, since this, these kinds of regulations were based on the idea of scarcity, and now we have the opposite of scarcity, 
No, the regulations would not work now. And I feel that sometimes uh, liberals, progressives call for the, you know, bring the Fairness Doctrine back. It'll fix everything. It won't fix everything. It can't, it can't work. It would only apply to ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox, you know, WB's defunct now, but whatever, you know, the, the broadcast networks. So it's not going to apply to Glenn Beck on his website or, you know, all of these smaller venues, all the kind of local venues of right-wing speech. And you can always just leave the network and go to satellite. You know, it can't work in this, this atmosphere of, of, mul of multitude of voices. Um, so thanks, Heather. It was a terrific talk. And I have a question about, I mean, one of the great things in, in, in your book uh, is the way it ex excavates a lot of the power of local television. And mm -hmm. local television, I mean, I'm, I'm a pre-1945 television uh, specialist, so I don't look so much at contemporary stuff. But um, my sense of what's been done on the local post-1950s post mm. is looks at local stations, at individual stations, and the kind of a, a holistic look at entities. Uh, so two questions. One, is there good systematic survey uh, material of local broadcasting patterns across the board? Mm -hmm. And two, in terms of the kind of stuff you're looking at in particular, how much evidence is there of, I, I, I don't know if I was mishearing you, but it sounds almost like a very strategic, systematic attempt to circumvent, you know, to really come in under the radar to really get maximum penetration in regions, the South or whatever. Um, so I'd like to know a little more about that. Was that indeed strategic? And B, uh, how did they do it? Was this, were tapes cycled? Was this stuff, how was, how was this material circulated? Okay, yeah. Well, the first question was just about sources on local programming and so on. And, you know, I think one of the best one is Deirdre Boyle's book, I think, Subject to Debate, about public access, you know, um, around, around the country. Um, and that's really the best thing that we have going right now, I think, in terms of extensive studies of this. Um, there are smaller studies here and there, like uh, 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 Devorah Heitner has done work on uh, black public affairs shows, early PBS shows that you know, came out of local educational TV and then went national on PBS. So there's spot studies. But in terms of a complete book, I think Boyle is, is probably it. In terms of organization, um, the broadcasters of the 50s and 60s, especially the 60s when the extremist, overtly extremist discourse took off, they knew they were all in certain ways on the same page, that they were pushing for a real Republican Party that was a genuine conservative party, um, untempered by uh, you know, the kind of uh, Eisenhower type of moderate Republicanism. Um, they were excited by Goldwater, and that's what pushed them to escalate the amount of broadcasts they were doing. But they couldn't collaborate. You know, they couldn't get organized. Um, and the, the, the most organized person, and it's sketchy, but is Billy James Hargis, you know, who understood that you had to get various fundamentalists to talk to each other. And in a way, he's a precursor to Jerry Falwell because the, the um, difficult things for these guys, like if you wanted to advocate around abortion, uh, it was hard to do because the Protestants were against it and the Catholics were against it, but the Protestants hated the Catholics. I mean, the fundamentalist Protestants thought the Catholics were of Satan. You know, they were, the Pope was the Antichrist. So the anti-Catholicism was so strong that they couldn't collaborate to, you know, work towards a kind of policy effort. And Billy James Hargis was one of the first guys to actually try to advocate around abortion issues, but the problem was he was, he was such a scoundrel and such a, a poor fundraiser uh, and such a, you know, skimming money off the top of everything that, you know, he would release this uh, sort of pamphlet on um, abortion 
called uh, Thou Shalt Not Kill My Babies, with a little picture of a baby, you know, just, you know, just very melodramatic, you know. Uh, and all the money would go back into the organization. It wouldn't go into doing any kind of organizing or anything, you know. So he, he knew that, the, like, the waiver issues were important, but he just didn't know how to do it. And then he got taken down by sex scandals and financial scandals, and it was just kind of a mess. But he was the closest one to thinking about how people could talk to each other. Um, so that's one side of your organizational question. The other one was much more practical. You know, how do these things get circulated? Um, the uh, Smoot films, there was a really mix of kind of alternative strategies. For example, a lot of stations uh, couldn't find advertisers because it, that you might be a right-wing businessman running Paper Mate or Technicolor or whatever. You didn't want your name stuck to this stuff, right? So you'd either, they would secretly fund a show, but not want their name on it, not actually show the advertisement. Um, or you might have to get local businesses, but not national businesses. Uh, so often, the local station would say, well, we'd like to run your show, but you're going to have to find your own advertisers. So, you know, Smoot had a uh, benefactor. He had D.B. Lewis, the dog food man, you know, so he was going around with him. And when Lewis died, he could only stay afloat for about three years. H.L. Hunt uh, created his own canned goods company, H.L.H. Uh, uh, Foods, something like that. Apparently very poor quality canned goods. And they would advertise on all the H.L. Hunt shows. Uh, and you know, no one wanted the canned goods because they weren't good. And so the, the, you know, he was uh, draining his own funds to advertise his own shows and always looking for more uh, people to, to, to back the shows, but, he, but no one would want it to back them because he was impossible to get along with. He was very difficult. He was, he was constantly reporting other right-wingers to the FBI because he thought that since they weren't his friends, they must be communists. And the, and the FBI would spend in special, special agents. I've looked at his FBI file, you know, and they'd be like, no, everyone just hates him because he's impossible, but, you know, it's not... <laughs> They're not communists. They're total right-wingers. So, uh, you know, you, you really have this issue of, of very, very difficult personalities, you know. Um, Hunt, uh, Lifeline, uh, as Poucher, Poucher was fired, um, and then they got this new guy, Melvin Munn, and Munn really kept the operation afloat for about 15, 20 years, and he uh, started sending out, he found that the best way to distribute stuff, they used to send out 16-millimeter films, uh, if it was uh, for TV or if it was on radio, they'd send out tapes. And the idea was you're supposed to pay them a certain amount and then send the tapes back. And no one sent them back because they could record over them and they wanted to use them. So he started sending out LPs, which he didn't have to send back. And the idea was after you played the LP, donate it to your local library or your John Birch Society American Opinion bookstore or wherever it takes, you know, just circulate it. So it was worth taking the cut of the hit of not getting the records back to get it out there. Now, we can't trace what happened to those records. They're just around. I mean, there's hundreds of them at uh, Texas A&M, you know, just there. So we have really good records of all those broadcasts because they were on LP instead of reel-to-reel. Uh, -reel. Um, this is kind of a parochial question, and it may be uh, off your main line, but I'm very curious to know what the, the reaction of the uh, sort of the early fringe conservative broadcasters as you're talking about uh, was to the uh, Sputnik event. Um, you know, given the relationship to science that yeah. particularly the religious conservatives have today, I'm wondering sort of how far back it goes and whether it was ambigu ambiguous in his early days. Yeah, I mean, they thought that was a sign that the Russians were winning. 
Uh, I mean, at that point, Adolf Manjou was studying Russian and advocating that we should all study Russian to prepare for the, the Russian takeover. You know, uh, and uh, the John Birch Society, of course, had had, uh, or at least Welch in his first book, The Politician, had said that Eisenhower was a conscious agent of, agent of the Communist Party. Right. So. <laughs> Communist conspiracy, excuse me, thank you. Yeah, and then later editions of the book, they just took that sentence out, you know. But that was when even, you know, the JBS got branded as too far right. And they tried to do tremendous image control to show, no, 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 we're not far right. And in fact, they started sending out uh, uh, promotional films showing themselves at banquets in suits, and the ladies had nice gowns and big hair, you know, and they, they had uh, uh, Miss, Miss uh, Arizona or Miss California on the dais, you know, and they're eating steaks and drinking martinis, and they really wanted to convey an image that we're upscale businessmen, we're not riffraff, we're not the KKK, and really uh, the White Citizen Council tried to do a similar thing, and the White Citizen Council, what, you know, had a lot in common with the KKK, but they're striving for this upscale image. So, I think that Sputnik moment, you know, sort of fed the anxieties that the JBS was trying to stoke and that Robert Welch specifically was stoking, that we're really kind of losing this war and uh, we're at a crisis moment, you know. Um, I'm sort of interested in uh, going back to the earlier era, some of the materials you were showing. Um, the, the kind of phenomenon of, of the selective depiction of liberalism or even the performance of progressivism in yeah. some of these shows. I mean, it's probably something that comes out of the, the mandate of kind of appearing to, to give equal time. Fair and balanced. Exactly. Yeah. And, and we still have that because of Fox's self-imposed mandate there. Um, hmm. it, it seems like there's kind of a tension going on because what, on the one hand, you have these broadcasters invoking uh, kind of liberal bogeymen. Um, yeah. The, this sort of... They use this language of, of creeping communism, and, and they describe uh, sort of the liberal menace as being these, you know, these, these godless uh, people with their orgies and their littering. And, and you know, on the other hand, when, when you actually see one of the liberals on camera, um, they're, they're just kind of harmless fall guys. I mean, they're, they're certainly fallible, but not exactly terrifying. They're just sort of the effete, chin-stroking liberal stereotype, which is sort of set up for... Uh, being outmatched and outwitted by the, the conservative. Yeah, yeah. So how do these depictions kind of exist? Is there a tension? And you know, what, are, what, are the, what are the uses of, of each? And then together, what, what, what worldview is this supposed to espouse? Because it's kind of, it well, seems confusing. I think it's, it is confusing. It, you're really looking at a shift from the 50s to the 60s, right? So that Hunt in the 50s is like, I'm not going to get away with this and keep my 501c3 status if I don't uh, you know, have this fair and balanced program, right? So obviously I'm biased in one way, but I've got to try to make this look okay. And in the early days, I mean, they did interviews with really mainstream members of Congress who didn't realize the show has a right-wing slant. You know, it, was, it seemed very mainstream at first until it clearly was you know, veering right. Um, and sometimes Smoot would have a real caricature of the left, and other times it actually sounded just about right, which is why he had to leave, because he couldn't stand it. You know, he hated to have to say these liberal words. Um, and in the 60s, there's no attempt to show that perspective. And they can really veer far right, but they're also afraid about the personal attack rules in that 1960 policy statement and so on. Um, and they're afraid of the, the later decision about uh, the red line decision, you know, that they have to give free time to someone. And it becomes not so much Smoot who's worried, but the stations that are airing him. Because you didn't have to have fair and balanced discussion within the same show. 
It was great if you did. That helped the local broadcaster when they filled out their FCC renewal forms to show, you know, all of our public affairs shows have a pro and con side to everything because that's there's two sides, right? Um, but really, the FCC required balance across the whole broadcast schedule. So if you had Smoot and you followed that by someone who was a liberal news commentator, that was fair enough. But the local stations became anxious about, you know, where are we going to find that other program? Where, you know, they, you know, is there free public service out there? You know, they didn't want to spend for it. They wanted, you know, they were hoping to find free programming to, you know, satisfy their public interest requirements, public service requirements. So it became more and more difficult for the shows <coughs> to go on. Um, and part of what makes Firing Line so interesting is that you have someone who clearly an arch conservative who actually is willing to have the liberals on again after years of Smoot and Hunt and all these other fellows in the 60s and Billy James Hargis and Carl McIntyre who are not having that other point of view on. He's got it on. And sometimes, uh, you're right, they seem sort of feckless, you know, just, oh, just like kind of inoffensive, right? Uh, there's a really wide range of exchanges on Firing Line. Uh, when Chomsky is on the show, the, they're just talking in different directions, you know? They're just not talking to each other. It's, all, it's just really poor TV. Um, you know, Chomsky thinks that, that the, the, the peasants in China actually have a really great deal, and everything's going great in China. I mean, that's how it's coming across on the show, and Buckley is like, what stuff and nonsense, you know, is what he said. And it's just, you know, it's not a real conversation. When he has uh, uh, Mailer on, you know, they're both, you know, good with words, <laughs> so it becomes much more interesting. When he had Huey Newton on, uh, Newton just goes off on a monologue, and Buckley can't even really get anything in, and you know, and he's in, and he has uh, he's in Houston at I think Rice University, and uh, you know there are all these students from the Urban Studies program who are there who thinks who Newton is great. They're just like, yeah, we know exactly what you're talking about. And Buckley's like, I have no idea what you're talking about, and I consider myself a very close listener, and I don't think you know what you're talking about. But he's really stole, but but Newton, who is kind of incoherent, has still stolen the show, and he just lets him do it. So what's so interesting about that show is the the range of liberal perspectives that could be expressed. You know even if Buckley would say, ah, it's ridiculous, but you know, it was there. Um, that couldn't happen in the 60s. And that's part of the transformation of, from extremism to you know, having a more kind of modern image and getting, in part, starting to move away from communism as the organizing force of what conservative speech had to be. I mean, if you think about the, the crisis around the selling of the Pentagon, you know, has anyone seen the selling of the Pentagon? It's, you know, it's an amazing controversial show, which opens with, I can't remember who the newsman is, Roger Mudd or one of the big mainstream guys saying, um, you know, in the 50s, we were all very concerned about communism, but things have changed. We live in a time of peaceful coexistence, and that kind of extremism seems to be over. And yet the military is spending millions and millions of dollars a year making films and doing propaganda and having uh, like uh, military shows where they bring out tanks and let kids climb all over them to support the military and child the military. And, you know, this seems like a waste of money, right? And so the, this mainstream news is explicitly straining the claim that the 50s anti-communism was normal, and the 60s we have to shift and moderate our discourse. So it's a reaction against that shift that, that Hunt and Smoot are enacting. And then Buckley is still terrified by, by communism, but takes it in the next step towards uh, uh, moderation or balance, if you will. a speculative question, I guess, but, and this is, all of this is totally outside of my area of, like, any interest, like, I had never seen any of these shows before. Um, 
But basically, just in terms of image and strategy, um, it's interesting to me that the, at least the clips that you've shown, they seem to be very explicitly not religious in terms of structuring, even though like religion seeps in, it's not yeah. that it's not like organized like a televangelist show or something yeah. like that. And it, it clings to the strategy of this is a news program, this is a debate program. I was just wondering if you could kind of expand on that and Yeah. This that, that's a that's a good thing to bring up. Uh, this is there there are four case studies in the book of four figures. And these are the two secular figures. So the other two figures are Billy James Hargis and Carl McIntyre, who I've you know referenced a little bit. So McIntyre had his 20th century Reformation hour uh, for 68, like 13, 14 years. And at one point, he had 500 stations. So he was the most widespread of, of, at that point of all the, the right-wing broadcasters. And his shows, were a mix, uh, his shows were a mix of sermonizing and anti-communism and anti-civil rights and so on. Um, and then he would just have straight-up sermons. And then he would have just you know playing an organ and somebody singing some tunes. And then he would have the public affairs shows on his station, like the Smoot and the Hunt and, and, the, and John Birch Society for when it was briefly on radio. So uh, there was a lot of, of very religiously oriented right-wing material in, the, in these years. Billy James Hargis ran the uh, Christian uh, Crusade. And that was a radio show for years and years. And he had just TV specials, which he would put out in 13 uh, episode packages. Um, that the radio could be more right-wing than the TV, because I think the radio was seen as sort of going beneath the wire, like nobody had out their tape recorders to record it. You couldn't find a record of it. So you could say anti-civil rights stuff. And then if someone accused you of it, you'd say, like, I didn't say that. You know? And I think he felt like with TV, there was more of a record. They were sending out 16 millimeter films. You could pull up the film and say, yes, you did say that. You know? So I think that the TV shows came across as more moderate. Um, and also, the TV shows were just designed to fundraise. You know? And if you wrote in for information about the TV, they would say, you know, you want to learn more about Jesus Christ, send a note here. And then they put you in their database and use you for fundraising later. Um, so he's a, like a maverick in that kind of direct mail fundraising. So in this, the, the era of all things transmedia, uh, where we think we've invented this, this new concept, and of course it's been around forever, but it's very striking to hear your comments because it sounds as though there are a number of strategies, both uh, advertent and inadvertent, uh, in terms of thinking about working across media streams. You mm -hmm. mentioned that the John Birch Society preferred bumper stickers and, and billboards, yeah. but also had a radio presence and then is tr trying to sort of dress up in terms of the televisual presence. Um, how? Any evidence of how conscious these strategies were? Are these targeted to their demographic? Are they just sort of doing what their budgets afford? Is it about individual visionaries who have some sense of how, how media work? Were these coordinated campaigns or just kind of happening? I think the Birch Society was the most aware of what it was doing in terms of image. Um, they had people in Congress who were said, I'm proud to be a member of the John Birch Society. And uh, Barry Goldwater saying, I, he was supported by the KKK, but he rejected the KKK. Uh, he was more ambivalent about White Citizens Council, and he would, uh, because he believed in states' rights, right? And uh, he said, I, there are many fine, upstanding members of Congress and of society and the John Birch Society, and I would never say anything bad about them. You know, it's just... So the, the Birchers were the most conscious of their image issues, in part because they, they had a lot more money. They did have more upscale, uh, uh, wealthy patrons than uh, you know, some of these guys kind of working on the ground. Um, Hargis was uh, deliberately uh, trying not to upscale his image and deliberately being anti-intellectual 
and proud of the fact that he never really went to school and embracing this kind of populist, uh, I just believe in freedom and democracy and you know, I, I don't need to prove it, I know it's true, I believe it like I believe in Jesus. You know? So he was pushing this downscale image in a way and which helped him raise money. You know, this kind of populism helped him raise money. So that's their profiles, but is there much on their media strategy? Did they talk about their campaigns or where they would no, play stuff? No, absolutely okay. did not. So it's all sussing out and reading between the lines of what's going on by going through the archival material. You never find a media plan in any of the material. You have to look at the materials that are out there and then backtrack and intuit and you know, deduce what was going on. Compared to, say, Buckley mayoral's Buckley's mayoral campaign where they hired companies and they you know, submitted reports about place-based <clears throat> media, the billboards, the bumper stickers, the pins, the radio spots. You know, there's a whole system in place there. But these guys were often very unsystematic, and there's no record. It's me putting it together as the historian telling, this, telling the story later, hopefully telling it right. Try. Um, just a little more on, on this um, idea you have, which I think is really uh, productive of um, localism mm. and what localism really is, uh, because uh, most people seem to have this feeling that, you know, if it's out there among the people, uh, the liberal mood will emerge and so on and so forth. But uh, the way in which you've uh, uh, positioned this. Uh, indicates or suggests that localism is also a uh, framework in which uh, certain types of trends can find expression in which they can't in a much more national, larger pool of uh, evaluation. By so virtue of being local and being yeah. kind of beneath the radar. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. could you maybe just uh, reflect a little bit on localism in, in, in media itself? Because you said also, and I think you're right, that we seem to be in a new age of localism yeah. in, the, in the sense that we now have all these uh, local uh, markets, these niche markets and so forth. So just maybe reflect a little bit about that, uh, that, that, that general trend. Well, I'm not sure what I can add to what mm -hmm. I've already said. I think that we are at a really interesting time where because of all the media diversity, the huge number of outlets, you know, uh, it's hard to pin down the local. So that anything that is local, by, by virtue of its dissemination, its distribution, suddenly seems sort of borderless. You know, I think of one of the um, uh, research groups uh, that I saw on the, on the CMS uh, website uh, shows a cell phone use for, uh, like, I, this example I gave earlier, of the pothole in, uh, what country was it? There was a storm and there was a pothole in the street and they were, Brazil, Brazil. it was in Brazil. <coughs> Right, and you know they have this cell phone image they do with you know of this pothole in the street, and eventually someone put a chair on and put a dummy on it sitting there, and they kept complaining to the local authorities, "Come fix our pothole." I mean, it was really deep, right? It looked really dangerous. Um, what could be more local than using media in this way? You know, just putting it online and saying, "Look, everybody knows there's this huge hole here. What are you waiting for?" And finally, they come and fix the hole. Right? That seems like a really local use of media. But you know, there it is on the MIT website. I don't live in Brazil, and I know about it. And you know, it's suddenly not a local thing at all. It's an example of, of uh, you know, uh, an example we can all follow. It becomes sort of symbolic of how you could use social media to get things done or to you know tell, share your story with other people. So, you know, once something is mediated, now it 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 might be flavored with the local, but it loses that actual kind of authentic localism 
not to be essentialist about it, but that something like the Dense Moot Report has, you know, showing in Texas and Arizona and California and not in New York and not in Boston and no one in those places really even knowing about it until TV Guide puts out a big story on the ultras and, you know, TV Guide and the nation were the, the two main sources that kind of made people aware of this on a national level. And you still only knew about it from reading the nation and TV Guide because, you know, you couldn't actually access it. Where would you go to find it? You know, you could, get the, you could get those records maybe, right, if you lived in the right state. And you could go to the American Opinion bookstores probably and find some of this stuff. I mean, the John Birch Society American Opinion bookstores had um, the set of 12 classic books that you needed to be a conservative. And one of them was Dan Smoot's uh, The Invisible Government, you know, about his conspiracy theory. So you could learn about these guys from John Birch Society bookstores, which, and they were based in Belmont, Massachusetts. So they're a northeast uh, kind of spot for, uh, for this stuff. But everything else seems sort of um, isolated down in the south and Sun Belt and aggressively local. Yeah, so it's really interesting to hear you bring up uh, Brazil in this case because the question I was going to ask you was about sort of the, um, I'm not sure exactly how to frame it, not necessarily the transnational implications of your work, but the, it's more of a question about uh, in this field of studying uh, right-wing and conservative media strategies, both through history and, and moving into the present day. Mm -hmm. um, do you see, who are the people that you see out there doing this kind of work in other national contexts? So in the spring, you know, we're going to be bringing uh, some filmmakers here who are working on a transmedia activism project mm -hmm. about um, the untouchable case in India and right. the transition from untouchable right. to Dalit. And they've been talking to me about how in the process of trying to make this film, they're constantly getting attacked by these right-wing uh, Hindutva fundamentalists who are linked to the former BJP party, which was the governing party, which is all around, like they're being accused of, they're being accused of being Christian fundamentalist, anti-Hindu. It's like this crazy thing. So they're actually, you know, trying to raise all these interesting questions around caste and class and race and gender and sexuality. And they're being attacked by this right-wing media machinery in India. Um, so what does it look like to kind of transnationalize the kind of approach that you're taking, and how, where could we see that kind of going? Um, I don't know in the next in the next few years. Hmm. Well, I do know about the Video in the Villages project, which is a Chinese media project that is you know aggressively local, going to different communities and having people shoot their own stories. Right? Have you seen any of that materials? Well, so, well but specifically, I'm asking about okay. sort of right-wing media machineries yeah. in other national contexts, okay. Okay. and and especially as they transnationalize and these firms what start I, to make links across local right. markets. What I think I know the most about is probably um, TBN, Trinity Broadcasting Network, um, and you know in the 80s, in the wake of the Swaggart scandal, uh, the Billy James Hargis scandal, you know, all these various uh, broadcasters who were kind of literally caught with their pants down, uh, uh, Jim and Tammy Faye, you know, everything seemed to hit the fan, right? Um, people were very aware of religious broadcasting and these uh, uh, PTL, praise the Lord, all this stuff. And if you ask people that now, they're like, oh, does that still exist? And of course, when I go home to Birmingham, Alabama, yes, it does, right? It's still, you know, on the air. But we... It's less present. It's less covered in the media. It's like it's gone. What it's done is gone international, you know, so that TBN is much, much stronger internationally, I mean, everywhere, than it is in America. It, uh, I mean, Pat Robertson, who started out with TBN, working with uh, Paul and Jan Crouch, who run TBN, right? Uh, he, you know, he's the first one to buy, a, first Christian fundamentalist to buy a satellite dish, go into outer space to go international. Um, so... 
the religious broadcasters who used to seem so huge in America, of course, Pat Robertson is still doing a lot in America, but they've gone very, very international. And TBN, I think, is the best example of that. And TBN, I think, was the, one of the first to have a Latino host on the show and, you know, to start broadcasting in Spanish and try to go not, uh, try to go south, you know, in their broadcasts uh, and reach outside of, of, of America. So I think that's a, that's a step towards answering what you're asking. I can't. I couldn't say definitively. I don't want to. I don't want to get it wrong. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure. You all must be tired by now. Hmm? All right. Okay. Any more? That's it. Heather, thanks very much. Sure. Um, thank if you. If you haven't seen her book, it's a great read. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for all your great questions. I really appreciate it.